The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Truthfully, the answer to that is yes, but um, you also uh, pay your vet bills at my practice. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to another week of GDIY. Gundog it yourself. Stuck with me, as always, is Austin. What's going on, everybody? Can't seem to get rid of them. Really going to have a problem here soon with getting rid of him now that uh, we have a really big announcement. Uh, Austin is, uh, he can tell the future. So, Austin, you want to tell everybody about it? Have that crystal ball, baby. So, y'all heard me sell out uh, early. I was probably episode one or two of the podcast. Yeah. Gunner Kennels. Look, guys, we got them, and this is a big-time sponsorship for us. Um, we're very appreciative that, they're, that they uh, have entrusted us to uh, provide us some, some things to give away and to create a partnership with them. And, look, if, you aren't, if you're not following us on social media, go ahead and do so because that's where we're going to be doing a lot of the promotional giveaways. Um, also... We are creating a website that should be up any day now that's going to have a link uh, on there. And Nick, if you want to hit on that. So we will have an embedded link to, uh, or an affiliate link going to Gunner webpage. So if you're considering getting a Gunner kennel, I think everybody listening to this podcast is probably familiar with Gunner. If not, it's top of the best kennel the, on the market. It's top quality. And, uh, you can't go wrong with it. If you're thinking about it and considering it, we'll have more information as soon as the website comes up, but we'll have a link that'll go through Gunner. And if you're wanting to buy a Gunner, it really will help us and benefit out the podcast if you purchase the Gunner Kennel through our link. So we don't have all the information right now for you guys on everything that we're going to be giving away, the whole details of our uh, sponsorship, but we want to go ahead and put everybody on notice, get this information out there. And uh, just make the announcement. Yeah. 
But there's more. Tell us about that. Duck Camp. It's an apparel company out of Texas, and it's a wing shooting apparel company. They pride themselves on good quality uh, shirts, shorts, every pants, everything that you can need to uh, hunt. It's not just duck hunting apparel, it's wing shooting apparel. And uh, we worked out a nice little partnership agreement. They sent us some of their top quality products for us to test out and put out there to everybody as far as what we think and put it to the test and put it through the ringer. And I tell you, we got it in the other day. We opened it up and it it, it appears to be some pretty quality stuff. So we'll you'll be hearing about that uh, in more detail coming soon once we have a chance to put it on a field test. Uh, we're going to give our honest opinions as we go through it and test it out. Yeah, for sure. And I can tell you, you know, I, I'm one of these guys. I like uh, having the, the classic stuff to wear out in the field. I've, I've got a shirt that I wear all the time in upland hunting that I think has been around since the late 70s, early 80s. And hand-me-down. I love the hand-me-downs, man. I, I think it's cool, you know, I, just the – for whatever reason, I like it. And they've so, they've so, got a good feel, good look. They ha- they have all kinds of different camo patterns. Go check them out. If you're not familiar with them, uh, just just give them a quick Google, and uh, we'll have a lot more information coming about them as well. And w- we also have giveaways coming with some of their stuff. So, again, another reason to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. For sure. The quality of this stuff is what I was going to say. I'm telling you, it can last generations at least the the heavyweight shirt that i'm going to be wearing quite a bit so let's move on a little bit nick let's go on to uh talk about some of the feedback that we got from the last episode we had a tremendous response to last week's episode a lot of really good feedback constructive criticism suggestions everything that we're hoping to get from listeners because we really truly honestly want people's feedback and suggestions we want to know what you guys hear or what you want to hear and uh, what we want to, what you guys want us to touch on. And we don't know if we're doing a good job, bad job, whatever. Let us know. And uh, after last week's episode, we got a, we got a few good feedback from people. Yeah. We got some um, constructive, uh, I guess, criticisms and some things, but it was, it was productive because at the end of the day, we realized there were some things we left out and that honestly we feel a little stupid for leaving them out. And so <laughs> yeah. we want to address those things real quick. Um, uh, how about you run through the list for us, Nick, on what we want to hit and uh, correct ourselves on, or at least, you know, let the uh, listeners, you know, know what's out there to uh, reference. Uh, well, the first one that I'd, I really just felt like an idiot uh, coming from this world that I didn't touch on, there, there was a, a NAVDA judge, Pete Aplikowski, actually uh, pointed this out to me. The rule book that we were trying to refer to as much as possible throughout the episode is called the Ames Book. And you get it when you sign up and become a NAVDA International member. And that probably would have been good information to just put out there to people say, hey, if you have any questions or want more details or read about everything in, in more detail, go to the Ames book. It's a great starting point. And then go ask some questions because uh, the Ames book really does break out everything that you need to know about these tests. And uh, it, we should have probably thrown that out there immediately when we got started. For sure, because that's always the uh, reference point to really anything. Right. 
And then uh, another thing, we had a couple people. We had uh, Andy Cooper from Six Gun Short Hairs in Oklahoma, as well as another judge, Charles Coulter, point out to us. Uh, we should have probably mentioned the uh, Handler's Clinic. It's another tool that NAVDA offers to everybody to uh, break down these tests and get new handlers and even experience people more uh or introduction to the testing environment and the methods. A good example of that is exactly what happened during the podcast. We've been in this world for just a couple of years now. We've tested utility dogs. We've tested NA dogs. Still, we have confusion. The Handler's Clinic is meant to basically run down those scenarios so that you guys know what's expected and and really uh, just tells you, you know, how they break down the test and how they're judged. Yep. There's a different level of handlers clinic for different levels of testing. And it's a, it's a great opportunity. We're looking forward to it. I know our chapter has been talking about doing uh, some handlers clinics uh, next, next year, hopefully. So we're excited to, to give those a shot next year and learn more about this. And um, yeah, main, main thing is we, I think we said it probably 20, 30 times in the podcast episode. We weren't trying to be judges. Uh, we aren't judges, and uh, we're just trying to give a 10,000-foot view for, for everybody that is interested in this, and it came from strictly just a member and handler perspective, and uh, overall, we got just overwhelming positive results from everybody, in, including the, the NAVDA people, and uh, yeah, just we, we should have known to touch on the Ames book as well as the Handler's Clinic. For sure. So... Well, do you want to introduce our guest? The witty vet. The old witty vet. Dr. Whit Morgan. He's our vet down here at vet- Veterinary Associates of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He uh, not only is pro hunting dog, he is a hunter, and he has a Boykin Spaniel. You'll hear a little bit about that as we get going. But we recorded so long with him, we were covering so much good information, we actually split it up into two episodes. So this first episode is really going to touch on a lot of the puppy level vet timeline, the shot schedules and stuff like that, as well as nutrition and even a little bit on supplements. I know that's got getting kind of big in this world. Um, so that's going to be this first episode. That's one you're going to hear today. And next week's episode will be more focused on the field, first aid kits and, and DIY stuff in the field, stuff like that. But um, it's a lot of good information. He was he was kind enough to come on and and uh, give us his opinion on a lot of stuff. Yeah. So look, this is a guy obviously we we respect. He's our vet here, and uh, I think that y'all are gonna like this. It took us a while to find him. I know I went through three or four vets here in Nashville, and I, I was getting kind of fed up when one vet told me that I was being mean for making my dog hunt. So I didn't run into that luckily, but I I did have some issues finding a good vet as well. So fortunately I finally found this vet, found him through another person, through a a hunting organization and conservation organization. Uh, So again, if you don't have a good quality vet that you trust and know, then ask around, ask other fellow hunters, your NAVDA people, your AKC people, who, whatever organization you're in, ask around because who they're going to surely there's a reason why they're going to him and that's how we found wit and uh, you guys are going to hear more on his opinion on a lot of these questions that a lot of people have that's right so without any further ado let's get to it all right let's let him hear it y'all have a good one Uh, enjoy 
All right, everybody. We're uh, me and Austin are sitting here with Whit Morgan. He's uh, he's our vet. He's located down here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and uh, we're lucky to have him here. It took us a while to find a vet in the Nashville area that actually uh, not only enjoys hunting dogs but has hunting dog experience himself. And uh, so he was nice enough to come in here and just talk to us about a lot of stuff that people are curious about when they get into the hunting dog world. Uh, Whit, what's going on? Oh, not much, man. Good to be here tonight. It took us a couple of weeks to get it scheduled, but we made it happen. Yeah, we finally made it happen. Busy man. Yeah, hard to hard to nail you That's down. That's a good thing, though. Yeah, I suppose. So, uh, I guess just real quick, kind of give everybody, you know, where you're from and uh, what you, what you do and what got you involved in wanting to be a vet and everything like that. Grew up in a small town, northeast Alabama, uh, Boaz, Alabama. Um, been hunting most of my life, been around farm animals most of my life. Um, my dad, stepdad, Craig, he's, uh, uh, 50 years in the duck hunting world. And, uh, so I'd say that most of my dog experience comes with him and hunting with my stepbrothers. Um, and that's probably ultimately what got me into wanting to be a vet where, uh, just being around those guys and in that world really enjoyed it. And, uh, I guess I'm not one of those guys that had the, uh, I was six years old and I wanted to be a vet, but somewhere along the way, I made that decision to do that. And uh, it's been a uh, fulfilling career so far. Yeah. Well, uh, dogs, I know you have a dog. You want to tell people what you have and what's Davey going on? Crockett, Davey seven Crockett. Seven-year-old boy. Heck of a name right there. Yeah, yeah we, we fight over that one, I suppose. But. <laughs> I was about to say, an Alabama boy taking a Tennessee name. That's huh? right. That's or Kentucky right. name, I guess, depending on who you are. I, I saw enough Bear Bryants down there. Yeah? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wits an Alabama fan, unfortunately. Please yeah. do not hold it against me. I was about to say, don't hold it against him. He's an all right guy. It's coming from an LSU fan. So, uh, well, you got a Boykin. What do you do with him? What's his experience like? Crockett is – he's probably a little more amateur than a lot of your guys, but uh, he spent quite a few days in the flooded timber in Arkansas. He actually was out there this week with my folks. They're just out doing some scouting and working on our duck camp. But he's picked up quite a few birds, and uh, he spends a lot of his time being a pet. But he's a pretty, pretty awesome dog in the field and, and on the couch too, so – so have you only used them on duck, or have you used them in upland at He's all? He's specifically been a duck dog. Okay. All right. Well, I know Austin's brother has, has a Boykin. That's pretty much all our experience with Boykin. So, uh, we're, They're fun little dogs. Yeah, I, I want to see one in the field. I've seen – so we got uh, my brother's dog out in the field, and, and it did fine. Um, we had – it was just a preserve hunt that we did with it, but it was it was fun watching it. Yeah. They get They get after it. Well, we're gonna have to get you out one day and just see what she, see what the dog does around some chuck or quail or something. But uh, so let's jump into this. You know, when when everybody gets into this into the dog world, first thing I guess that they do when they get a puppy is uh, they have to figure their way around the the shot schedule. You you want to give everybody just a general outline on the shot schedule and uh, timing of everything on that? Sure. So let's talk about a few things first before we even get into the schedule. Let's talk about what are we vaccinating these guys for and why it's important? Um, so a couple of things. The, the main vaccine that you're going to get that, that they're going to talk to you about is the DAP uh, is, is typically the way it comes out, but that's an abbreviation for uh, distemper, parainfluenza, and parvo, and adenovirus. So those are your big four puppy viruses and, and canine viruses in general. 
Um, they all come with different consequences. Um, but puppies are extremely susceptible to all of those. Those vaccinations are pretty safe to be given early in life. We typically recommend doing that DAP vaccine at six weeks, um, beginning there. Um, so that's, that's kind of your core where you would start at six weeks. Optional vaccinations when you're at that age would include a Bordetella vaccine. Most people associate Bordetella by the name kennel cough. Um, technically, we call that infectious tracheobronchitis, but um, kennel cough is what you're going to hear the most. Um, so th those are the two that you'd start off with, and I recommend usually starting between six and eight weeks of age on those. A lot of breeders may give it a little sooner. Um, but so typically the average person getting a puppy from a reputable breeder, those shots are usually taken, but that's what to kind of ask your breeder before you pick up the puppy to make sure, you know, when you pick up your puppy, you guys should be getting a shot schedule of what, what all they've had so far. Exactly. And a lot of breeders are going to do that at, at four or five weeks. I've, I've seen them, uh, four to five weeks routinely. Um, honestly, you, these guys are not getting a lot of immunity from a four or five week shot and and they're probably not getting a lot of immunity from a six to eight week shot which uh, we'll talk about kind of when to introduce your puppy to the to the big world um which is certainly not at six or eight weeks but so we've talked about six eight weeks that's when we're going to do that dap shot that's when we're going to do the bordetella if your dog is going to be around other dogs uh, in a grooming situation boarding situation it's just gonna be around other dogs in general it's a good idea to avoid kennel cough it's probably not going to kill your dog but it's gonna it's gonna you're, you're gonna spend a trip to the vet and it's gonna cost more than the 15 dollar vaccine should have cost so the next set's usually three weeks after that so nine to ten weeks typically um, we're gonna do that dap shot again we usually like to do that four times um, before we consider the uh, the vaccine complete at that time, you can also talk about talk to your vet about adding in a few other things. Um, coronavirus is one of those. Um, corona is uh, specifically, it, it doesn't affect adult dogs nearly as much, and most of the time it's just 24 hours worth of diarrhea, maybe some respiratory signs. Most of the time that condition is self-limiting, so we don't, we don't often, uh, I don't always recommend that one um, to everyone, but that's something that, that's out there you can talk about. Of course, some vets will will will, uh, will booster the Vortitella at at ten weeks. I I typically just give one of those vaccines, but at that time too, you can start to talk about Lyme disease, which I know you guys had specific questions about. Yeah, and leptospirosis. We'll cover those a little later uh, when we get more into depth about what those disease processes are and, and why we vaccinate for those. But at that ten to twelve week window, you may start talking about those vaccines with your vet. So um, that, that 10 to 12 week window, uh, that, that set of shots before we were uh, got on here, we were talking about, you know, when people bring a puppy home, the first thing that a lot of people want to do is let's go to PetSmart. Let's, let's go to a pond. Let's go out in the field. Does that set a shot at 10 to 12 weeks old? Is that the shot that you really need to be waiting on before you go out into the, into the big world is what you said, uh, or what is there, what shot are we kind of looking forward to where you feel comfortable saying, Yes, take the dog out. 14 to 6 weeks is when I usually feel the most comfortable. They're going to grab the most immunity from those shots. Um, that's when you're going to start talking about the rabies. By that time, you're getting into your third or fourth um, distemper parvo shot. And, and in most cases, they've got plenty of immunity at that point. We don't see a lot of dogs that have four distemper parvo shots on board and and then they're coming in with parvovirus at 17 weeks of age so 
I'd say that fourth set in that 15 to 16 week range is typically when I would say they're, they're free to go. Okay. So is Parvo the main thing that you're trying to avoid when you're, when people say, don't take, take them to a pet store, don't take them into a pond, don't take them around, you know, a rest stop area where a bunch of other dogs go. Is that what you're kind of? Absolutely. Parvo is the one you want to avoid the most. I mean, distemper, they've all got their, they're all bad. Parvo's the one that's a crapshoot. You don't know. I mean, you yeah. get them in on day one, and we can hospitalize them intensively. It, it, it doesn't always matter. I mean, I, I had a roommate. He had a uh, Bernie's Mountain Dog, and he he was through his second or – he may have even been to his third round of shots, and he still came down with Parvo, and he barely made it. So I, I know from personal experience that, that that was not a fun trip to – live through for brad <laughs> what do you see the most with these puppies with is it the parvo or distemper you know what is it definitely parvo okay. um i don't see it I, for some reason i feel like i don't see it as much as we used to because i think people are getting smarter and smarter but um and i haven't been doing this forever or anything like that but i feel like i used to see parvo a lot more than i do now um i think there's just more information out there for folks so they know what what not to do um, but, but Parvo is definitely the one you're going to see the most. And in Parvo, it just, so you guys know what to look for. Um, you've got a young dog typically under six months, even if they're fully vaccinated, if your dog starts having diarrhea, vomiting, um, if you're one of these folks that's comfortable taking a rectal temperature and your dog's temperature is higher than 102.5 and, and they're showing those gastrointestinal signs, it means they need to be seen. Um, that's not something to play around with because Parvo you're looking at a 24 to 48 hour window, whether they're going to, in most cases, whether you're going to know whether they're going to live or die. What do you do? What's the first round of defense there? Like when you, if somebody was to present at your clinic with those symptoms, what's the first thing that you end up doing there? So we'd run a parvo snap test, uh, which is a fecal test that, um, that we would obtain. Next thing we do, if we get a positive sample, in most cases, an animal that young has has very few antibodies, and so a viral infection is going to run its course. Um, but in most cases where you get a viral infection, you're also going to have a secondary infection with bacteria. So um, while antibiotics aren't going to do anything for the actual parvovirus, we'd start them on typically IV antibiotics, IV fluids, and then it's just symptomatic control from there, something to stop them from vomiting so they're not losing those fluids and electrolytes, and the same for diarrhea, diarrhea treatments. So the bottom line is if you have a puppy expressing any of those symptoms and I mean, the sooner, the better to address that stuff so that you can get a hold on, not only attempting to have some type of reaction to the parvo, but those secondary infections as well. Absolutely. The secondary infections can be just as bad as the actual viral infection itself. So with a, with a young dog, those things happen so fast. Older dogs are going to be more resilient. So you know what, if you if your dog has had diarrhea for 24 hours and you feel like you can manage it at home, and we'll talk about some first aid stuff later, um, more power to you. But with those pups, it's really not worth taking the chance. Now, this may be a dumb question, but do you see older dogs that get parvo or anything like that? Or is it once you get these four rounds of shots, you're protected? You know, of course, you have your annual shots and everything that you get, but... What what do you see the most, I guess, with these older dogs? I would never say never, put it that way. I can honestly say I've never seen a dog over about a year old with Parvo, and those were dogs that never received vaccinations to begin with. Um, 
So I'll say this. If your dog's vaccinated and it comes to see me at 14 months and it's got a full vaccination record, including its first you know, years, uh, years annual vaccines, you show up to me with a fever, vomiting, and diarrhea, I'm probably not wasting your money on a, on a parvo test because it's just so rare. So uh, with the shot, were you done with the shot schedule? For the or? most part, the only thing I wanted to bring up um, were, were the rabies shots so that folks know because a lot of folks, uh, Nick was asking me about this earlier, were people obtaining uh, vaccinations from uh, a secondary source, tractor supply, pet store, wherever that may be, um, which leaves a little confusion as to where, where the rabies shot comes from. And those are going to be veterinary only. Now, there are pop-up vaccine clinics that, that you know pop up at Tractor Supply, PetSmart, wherever. But uh, rabies is a veterinarian-specific only. And sometimes, you, you know, also at your uh, spay-neuter clinics, paws, places like that, or the shelter. We have paws in, in Rutherford County. But um, so those are veterinary specific. Keep in mind, 15 weeks, 14 to 15 weeks is typically the earliest we recommend doing rabies. Animals in a shelter may get them much sooner just because they're not going to send them out the door expecting somebody will bring them back for that later on. But for the folks listening to this podcast, most of your, most of your dogs are going to receive your uh, rabies vaccine from your vet in that 14 to 15 week. So pretty much if you're doing shots by yourself, then you can take care of all of it except rabies, and you have to go to the vet for sure. that. Sure, technically you can do that. Be sure that you're, um, whoever you're getting those shots from is a reputable uh, reputable source. Remember, um, you're going to look for the distemper, adenovirus, parainfluenza, and parvovirus in any vaccine that you obtain. Uh, make sure that those vaccines have been stored and shipped uh, the way they were supposed to be. And if you read the fine print on most vaccines, it's going to tell you that you need to to administer that vaccine within 10 minutes of uh, reconstituting or mixing the vaccine. All right. Good info right there. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess the shot schedule, well, I guess when you get, when you bring a puppy in for shots, a lot of these people that are getting these puppies from uh, the more reputable breed- breeders that require maybe a puppy evaluation or something like that, that uh, they have a certain amount of time period before for them to recognize any major issues. Uh, how often do you see that to where people are just want, want you to give a, pretty much a clean bill of health for the puppy, essentially? And what are you looking for? And what is it that it's kind of... What can you honestly see from a puppy at that young of an age? So in a puppy that age, there are very few things that you can really determine. Um, I, I can't honestly tell you that I can tell you a whole lot about your dog's hip development, dog's elbow development at six or eight weeks, which is usually where you're picking that dog up from the breeder. You're bringing it to me. The main things I'm looking for is does this dog have a heart murmur? Um, does this dog's color look good? Um, one of the big things that we look at with puppies, people don't think think about this a whole lot, but are liver shunts. I don't see many of them. I probably see between 10 and 15 a year. Um, liver shunt is basically going to cause your dog in a lot of cases to have jaundice, which is where they're going to have yellow eyes, yellow yellow lips, things like that. So, um, so, so the liver's not doing its job the way that it's supposed to. Heart murmur should be something that every veterinarian should be able to pick up on. Um, I mean, that's what we're trained to do. So those are the things that are going to jump out at you. Um, I can't tell you if your dog's going to have allergies. I can't tell you if your dog's going to have hip dysplasia. Um, so those are some of the things that that you're going to read about online. 
make sure your puppy doesn't have hip dysplasia and, and so on and so forth. You, those are issues with development. Those are not issues that they're necessarily born with. They're genetics. And so genetics, uh, you know, you weren't born looking just like your dad, but you might look like him now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's the same thing with a dog's hips. Good deal. So one thing that um, I had written down was like an overbite or underbite issue. When, when can you, can you tell that with puppy teeth or when, when can you tell those issues? Often you can tell those things. That's one of the things that I left out. Obviously there are some that will grow out of those issues, but I'll say this, we've, I've spotted some at six weeks that never changed. So it's definitely something to bring up. Um, if you notice that your dog has a, has a, a gross overbite or underbite, um, and that's something that you should bring up with them at that at the time of the exam. But it, it's also not something that's cut and dry because those things can change. Well, so we're involved in NAVDA. And in our puppy tests and natural ability tests, the judges actually, when they get done with the water portion, they judge a few things on the physical makeup of the dog, such as coat and stuff like that. One of the things they look for is, is the teeth, the overbite and underbite. What What is something that, you know, what's – what does an overbite and underbite do for the dog? Like, what does does it? What are the repercussions of having that? Uh, well, long term, I would say um, one, especially with dogs that'll be in the field, will be um, different injuries that can take place. Um, you've got lower canines that are sticking out too far. That that creates a hazard for that dog to 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 break a mandible or something like that, snagging on a limb whatever that may be, because that, that those canines are not going to be tucked behind the lips like they normally would be. So that's one thing. Two, you're going to have issues it, it, potentially with the way those dogs eat. I wouldn't say it's going to be a major problem. Let's get real. A dog wants to eat. It's, it's going to find a way one way or the other. I've seen dogs that didn't have a, a lower jaw at all that – that didn't have a problem with that, but that's kind of where that starts. Okay. The bottom line is though, there could be some application to where it, it could interfere with the dog hunting or in different scenarios, but it's rare. Sure. It's rare, but also think about, you know, you're looking for a dog that's going to have a soft mouth, um, in, in its retrieving skills. And that could certainly from a hunting standpoint, not just from a veterinary or an injury standpoint, but from a hunting standpoint, you 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 may have some issues in that regard. That's awesome. I, I've always wondered like what the big deal is the on that. Is. Yeah, what the purpose is because I mean, once you t- test a dog in ABDA and they determine overbite or underbite, it's on their paperwork. So all their pedigrees and everything that with their test scores, it's going to show you know overbite, underbite, whatever. A dog with a, a dog with an underbite, the molars or the back teeth are going to press together sooner. Um, than they normally would. So that's probably where that comes into play. Okay. Interesting. I always thought it was it was simply, you know, this it's is not desirable, you know, breed or not breed type e- exactly. of thing. Exactly. It's yeah. a it's an undesirable trait. You don't want this this isn't the top notch level of the breed here because of that. So therefore you don't want to perpetuate that. Yeah trait so but the application of that and hunting scenarios just in general i mean that's that's a good point to make you know yeah. there is a reason spay and neuter timeline you oh, get a yeah. lot of people up in arms about this one way or the <laughs> this other is a big one especially i mean it, there's a discrepancy between if you're in the hunting world or non-hunting world and you know you got a lot of people just saying that you need to spay and neuter the dog as soon as you get it you got some people that say never spay and neuter the dog what what is What's your thoughts and opinion on that? So, 
I completely agree with you that there is uh, quite a bit of discord over the topic. Um, I, I could attest to that in my own home. My wife is also a veterinarian, and uh, she practices in the same in the same practice as me. And um, we 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 might may or may not have argued about this about six <laughs> hours ago. So uh, when I was getting ready to come in and talk to you guys, but the main things that that I'm concerned with are development of the dog. It depends on the breed. Um, for instance, my Boykin. I didn't. I neutered him sooner rather than later. Um, he he's a small dog. I saw his parents; they're small dogs. I, that's kind of what I wanted. Um, but if you're talking about a larger breed dog, um, and, and earlier we mentioned the Chesapeake's, something that's going to be a bigger, huskier dog that's going to be a, a, a stout hunting breed. Those we typically like to see. I like to see you wait a little longer on those. Uh, usually around a year. Estrogen in the female, testosterone in the male play a huge role in bone development. So when you're taking those two away, you, you can cause some issues, but there's there's really no cut or dry answer. Um, one of the things that I do like to recommend is that we, if you're not going to breed a female, you're 100% sure you're not going to breed a female, you can really reduce some health risks later in her life by spaying her before her first heat cycle. One of those is the development of mammary tissue. No mammary tissue means no mammary tumors later, as you probably know with human medicine. Mammary tumors are not good, and that's the same case with dogs. A second condition is pyometra. Um, I cannot tell you how many hundreds of dogs I've spayed in a, uh, in a life-threatening situation where they have a uterine infection. Um, the cervix closes after bacteria has migrated from the vagina into the uterus. Now all that bacteria is living in a 102-degree environment enclosed it's able to feed itself so so for for females if you're not going to breed these dogs in most cases i say spay them you're just eliminating further you're just eliminating a problem when they're eight nine ten or getting into their senior years and it's just not a problem that you should have to deal with well you you said before the first heat cycle does it do you still get the same benefits of doing it after their first heat cycle so statistically speaking um and and i would have to check these numbers down to the percent but i know that they're really really close i believe that the last time i looked at these numbers were a study of about 1500 female dogs um less than two percent if spayed almost zero percent if spayed before the first heat cycle and the number was still below two if i'm not mistaken now don't hold me to two it may be three or four but it's still really low so after a first heat cycle you still get a really good. So benefit. the odds go up, but just minuscule. Not even. Yeah, worth you're talking about really. three, four, five heat cycles. It starts jumping up into the twenty percent, and especially dogs that have been bred. But you know, I understand there's a reason for that too. So like me with with Rachel, she's five years old now, and she's she hasn't been spayed. And I was flirting with the idea of breeding her possibly one day. Now I'm kind of leaning towards not. Would you advise me right now to spay her or not? Truthfully, the answer to that is yes, but um, also uh, pay your vet bills at my practice. <laughs> <laughs> A little no, conflict no, of I, interest on that answer. No, <laughs> maybe so, but seriously, five years old, you're still running a pretty minimal risk. Um, it, you see, we, we do see the mammary cancers, adenocarcinomas, um, pyometrias a lot more than you think. And what most folks don't realize, I guess this is just the way life is, I feel like pyometras happen on Saturdays at two o'clock. 
in yeah. most cases. Emergency vet hours. That's, that's right. I know every works. time I vet, yeah, or every time my <laughs> dog does something, it's after hours. Yeah, I think y'all set it up that way. I really do. That's right, man. Every time you need a vet, it's it's emergency hours. <laughs> so you touch on the females. What what about males? Like what are what are the benefits and drawbacks to to fixing the males? So the big issues with males, health wise are going to be prostatitis and prostate cancers, which are both rare, being totally honest with you. But I have seen it many, many, many times. And uh, so it, it's another one of those things. It, it's, and I know we had some conversations, and we can, we can dive into this a little more in a second, about hunting drive and obesity and different problems like that. So I would say from a male's perspective, if I'm being totally honest with you, there are less health risks. Um, can only tell you a couple of dogs that have ever had a poor outcome due to something that was going on with their prostate, but I, I'd be lying to you if I said it never happened. It's out there. Yeah. So let's hit on that. Uh, you mentioned about the hunting drive and all that. Can you dispel the myth for us? Does it decrease a dog's hunting drive to have that dog fixed? Not even hunting drive, just energy overall. Because, I mean, some of the people that don't hunt, it's just like, oh, I want this dog to calm down. Let's get him fixed so that he'll calm down. In general, what do you think it does for the dog? Um, so, for the most part, I would tell you that dogs do not miss their balls. Um, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to find that if you work your dog, I think that, and I'm a believer in um, – it, it, it's the ball is in your court. If you are taking your dog out on a, a, a multi uh, times during the week basis and you're working these dogs, they don't lose their hunting drive. I think that more than they lose their drive, I think that uh, folks associate um, having their dog neutered. Uh, I think they lose their focus more because I think in the end, a lot of folks that are doing that sometimes aren't putting the effort in. Um, I'd be lying to you if I told you that I'd never seen a dog that I thought, man, he just lost a little bit of his edge. But I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think it's the vast, vast majority. Okay. What about in general um, in regards to weight gain and things like that? Uh, What do you see as far as getting your dog fixed and and weight gain? So there's definitely going to be a slowdown of the metabolism, okay? No question about that. We know that to be scientifically true. Um, at, at the same time, I think a lot of people will associate weight gain with being neutered or spayed um, to some degree with, uh, I, put it this way, I see it sometimes as an age problem too. Sometimes I'm not neutering. Uh, I'm not spaying a dog till four or five years old. Well, we know what dog years and human years look like, and we don't got to get into all those calculations because those are also kind of argued over it to some extent. But um, I gained weight a lot easier at age 33 than I did at age 23, <laughs> so I think there's a big difference in that too. Um, Is it also, does it kind of go with what you're just talking about on the edge and the and the hunting drive? If you If you're the owner that doesn't get your dog out enough throughout the week, that yeah it's going to lose its drive but it's also going to gain weight because it's not as active it's a that's a pretty simple uh equation there yeah a lot of it goes back to the owner and the owner's responsibility to to keep that dog exercised and having you know knowing its job sure so to sum that up you can cut the dog's nuts off and keep it active and it's going to still want to hunt and still look like it's active 
I would tell you in about 90% of cases, that's the fact. Uh, this science. brings up one thing. We <laughs> hit that? on this early, like first or second episode of the podcast. What's that? All right. Does fixing a dog, well, I guess it's just a male dog in this example. Does it cause that dog to pay more attention to you as the handler? Yeah. <laughs> we have it. We got an old school handler that... Uh, <laughs> He 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 says to fix any problem. I should cut the dog dog's nuts. Yeah, you off. cut the dog's nuts. If that dog ain't listening to you, cut the dog's nuts. This is one of the quote unquote self proclaimed best dog trainers in the southeast, and his solution for absolutely everything is cut the dog's nuts off. I think I know your answer, but I just had to ask since I'm, we're on the subject. I'm plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> no, the answer to that question is I don't think it's a be all end all for sure. Um, Certainly, if if you've got the most high strung of high strung dogs, I'm sure that it can help to some degree. But don't do not count on bringing your dog to me and uh, and having his nuts cut off. That that's going to change him entirely. That's kind of what I touched on earlier. I just don't believe that. So ultimately, my dog would not be a better retriever if I cut his nuts off. I don't believe that. <laughs> okay, that's all, that's all we needed to know. Uh, well, you got anything else on the spay neuter? I don't. You know? I don't. Okay. I, well, let's, I think we can... Let's jump of, into another hot debate and piss off one half or the other. Puppy vo- food versus all life cycle food. So, I think a lot of this matters. Uh, this depends, too, on on your particular situation and, and the dog itself. Um, so, puppy foods are typically going to be higher in calorie counts. They're going to be higher in proteins. Most puppy foods bottom out at around 22, 22.5% protein. Um, and obviously, you, you can understand why it's important to have those things for their development. Most adult or all life cycle um, diets, unless you're talking about a super old dog that you're dealing with kidney disease or heart disease or something along those lines, those protein levels are usually going to bottom out or average around 18%. The big, the big deal with those are um, the 22% if you're feeding a pup that for too long, in my opinion, I see a lot of dogs that come in for their first year. They looked fine when I saw them when they were 16 weeks old. We were doing that that last set of shots, and uh, I see them, you know, uh, eight months later. It's a totally different dog. I feel like some of those should have been off puppy food a little sooner, or they should have been cut back. But ultimately, what you really should be doing is talking to your vet about calorie requirements. Um, and I know we got everybody who's into the keto diets and the Atkins diets and whatever it is, the fad. But with dogs, ultimately, what we've got to base these things on or what we know uh, is in the food. What's the protein counts? What are the counts. calorie counts? What are the fat counts? What are the crude fiber counts? And, and there are ways to, to – we can dial it down to the exact calorie that your dog needs to be eating each day based on its activity level. So were you saying when the puppy comes in around a year old and it doesn't look good, were you saying that they look overweight or I think underweight? sometimes – I think a lot of times they look overweight. Now, I can look at some dogs. And that, like I said, it's just – I, I truly believe it's a dog-by-dog dog basis, just like the way people eat is a is a person-by-person person basis. Me and you might eat the same thing every day for the next 10 years, and one of us be – one of us look good in a medium and one of us, uh, you know – what are you trying to say here, Wit? I'm not looking at Nick. All right. Oh, <laughs> no, awesome. you're not looking at me either. <laughs> uh, no, I seriously, it's a dog by dog basis. But yes, I see a lot of dogs that come in at a year old, and I'm like, uh oh, we got to put the brakes on this. They've already developed bad habits. They're eating too many calories a day. So 
talk to your vet about those things, but but remember that if um, if you've got a fat one year old dog, it's not going to be a pretty picture when he's six or seven. Yeah. What What about you know? We see there's there's all these uh, uh, different companies now, you know, that are promoting these puppy foods, but I don't know what it is, but I feel like I've seen some of these foods that are kind of real high in protein content and low in fat content. And there's an argument, I believe, about whether that's good for the dog at a young age to have a high protein, you know, diet, at least higher than what's typically in puppy food. What's your opinion on that? Does it cause any type of development issues? Um, You know, I'm not so sure that there's, and this is just, I'm not a nutritionist, so I'll just throw that out there. I mean, I have nutritional knowledge, but at the same time, I, I, I don't know that there's a I don't know that there's a big um, a big advantage to having your puppy on a super high protein food. I'm not sure that it's harming them, um, but at the same time, it, I'm not sure that in most cases it's not just to get another dollar out of your pocket. Because if you look at what you're paying for these foods. In most cases, the ones that are throwing these super high proteins at you. Now, if you're working this dog, like I know Nick's out there multiple times a week. If you're if you're working the heck out of these dogs, it's not going to do anything to hurt them. If this is a dog that you're working once a week, do they really need that much protein? I don't know. I, I strongly doubt that like in an older dog where it's going to be damaging to their, to their kidneys or anything like that. But I, I'm not sure it's necessary either. I know my wallet was thanking me when I got off the puppy food with Lucy. I was about ready to say the hell with it. You yeah. go with the all life well, cycles. I mean, I can tell you, yeah, no, I've, I did all life cycles with cash. And I mean, that's, that's what our breeder, you know, fed him yeah. before I got him. And that's something maybe we can hit on as well. Uh, but you know, I, that's it's worked out great you know i fed him no puppy food all life cycles his entire life and i feel yeah. like he had a good uh, he maintained a, a a good weight and his stamina and everything so truth be told my dogs didn't eat puppy food yeah okay. that's just a yeah just a personal preference i don't want to shove my beliefs down anybody's throat i try to back it up with the science but it's, it's just what i chose to do so you're an adult and there you're not an adult dog but when you have an adult dog i know you said that you feed purina pro plan do you do the sport as well yeah okay so that's 30 20 is yep. that are you one of those people that during the off season you need to switch off of that or do you just reduce the amount that you feed the dog i typically reduce the amount yeah but okay. that doesn't work for everybody um some of these guys some of you guys got big eaters and you know, they live for meal time so some in some cases it is better to switch uh, to a different diet during the off season. I would say this though. Keep in mind uh, when when this is this is super elementary. I think everybody probably knows this, but I'm going to operate under the assumption that you don't switching dog foods. Make sure you guys do that at a controlled uh, pace. Right. Split a half and half for maybe even three quarters and a quarter of the of, of what you were feeding. And then half and half for a few days. Don't make an abrupt uh, switch, or you may have a uh, may have a uh, cleaning out the kennel issue. <laughs> yeah. Been there, yeah. Anybody that's had a dog has done that once or twice. Imagine having to do that a whole bunch of times. Uh, well, on the food, <clears throat> do you uh, 
you really want to make some people cry and give your opinion on grain free versus regular? Uh, we can go there. I'd say I'd say my opinion is still up in the air a little bit though. Um, I was explaining to you guys earlier that we've uh, we've had a little spike in the practice as far as running taurine levels because that's what everybody's reading about online. Um, the grain free diets have been a huge hit over the last ten to fifteen years because uh, the truth is that they have, and I've had hundreds of cases that have come in chronic allergies, ear infections, all kinds of problems that that we've fixed. Um, with grain-free diets because that's what we were taught to do when I was in school. We were taught to feed grain-free diets and limited ingredient diets and specifically hypoallergenic diets as well, but that's a totally different ball ballgame. Um, what we're finding in those grain-free diets is they're supplementing, um, they were substituting, I'm sorry, for the uh, uh, for those grains. They were, they were uh, sticking peas and lentils, different legumes in there. Uh, the problem with those are dogs are having a hard time either converting those, uh, the, the amino acids, or they were just having a specifically a lack in taurine, which is leading to, uh, in large breed dogs, a belief that, um, of course, what the FDA is saying is leading to um, heart disease, some of these guys. So specifically dilated uh, cardiomyopathy. So um, I think the jury is still out there a little bit. The study was done in NC State. It seems fairly conclusive. Um, so I'll say this, take grain-free diets, uh, with a grain of salt. Um, if your dog has really benefited in some way from, um, grain-free diets in a manner that it's helped with allergies and things like that, more power to you. I'm not telling you that you should step away from those, but it might not be a bad idea to do a yearly check on their taurine levels just to make sure you're not running a risk of throwing them into heart disease earlier than it might've happened naturally. So that's... What's the easiest way to explain to the average person taurine levels? So taurine is an amino acid. Uh, amino acids we know are a, a major building block of muscles, and uh, um, the heart is a is nothing more than a muscle. So if you if your heart is lacking amino acids, those are some of the building blocks. Over time, um, the heart muscle can become stretchy, and it doesn't uh, doesn't contract the way that it should. Um, on an x-ray, if your vet's looking at that, he's going to see a heart that looks big. And basically what's happened is you're just stretching it out like putting more air into a balloon. So um, wow. it just doesn't contract the way that it should. You're not getting the cardiac output you're looking for. And uh, I guess that's about as simple as I can. Yeah, no, that it. makes perfect sense. So since the FDA report and everything has come out, has that changed how you've suggested people go with grain-free diet? I know you said it's still up in the area, but have you stopped suggesting to I've, people to use it? I, I wouldn't necessarily say I've stopped suggesting it. I'm a um, kind of base my practice off giving people their options, but it's something that I bring up every single time. So pros and cons, um, and it always depends on the, the patient, the amount of money that an owner's willing to spend. Um, obviously, hypoallergenic diets, and just so you know, if anybody ever brings up a hypoallergenic diet to you, what they're specifically talking about is a diet that the protein source has been hydrolyzed or broken down into the into the next form so the body doesn't recognize the protein source. So that's that's kind of jumping out into a completely different conversation, but hypoallergenic diets versus grain-free, I don't touch grain-free unless I've got a dog that I suspect food allergies in. 
Uh, never really have because I don't have a reason to. Yeah. What What is the most common food allergy that you see? You know, is it like a chicken based food or rice based? What do you, do you, do you have any idea on that? So I was taught along the lines that beef and chicken were probably your two biggest sources because they'd been around the longest, specifically beef, uh, which was a much bigger player in the dog food world in the 80s and 90s than it is now. You basically can't find it anymore in, in most cases. Um, maybe some beef byproduct here and there. But, um, yeah, so chicken. And then, obviously, the whole thing with the grains jumped in there a while back, and people started eliminating grains, and dogs started doing better. But I'll say, for the most part, my belief is that it occurs from a protein source. Okay. Now, let's hit on that. Let's do the segue then into the protein source. What about raw food diets? I don't have an issue with those. I, I personally... Um, and that's something that we talk about too when we talk about nutrition in my practice is, um, and I get that question a lot. Um, it, it certainly has some benefits, but be prepared for more meal prep, uh, be prepared for a lot more effort and be prepared for higher cost. Those are all things that are going to come your way. Uh, I, I can't honestly say that I've probably got more than I'd say I've got 15 to 20 clients in my practice that do a really good job of feeding raw, uh, raw diets and their, their animals have really thrived on those, but, um, they've also got a high level of dedication to that. Well, not to catch you off guard, but most of the people in this podcast listening to this is probably going to be hunters. What do what would you say about venison or deer meat being applied to the raw food diet? You think mm. that that would give enough nutrients? I, like it's real lean. I know it doesn't have a lot of fat content. Do you think that that could be supplemented to kind of bring the cost down for some people? Sure, I think it could be supplemented, but I would tell you that would be my first thing when you before you said that. My my first concern with that is is uh, how how lean venison is, um, and, and not that these guys need a ton of fat content. But let's keep in mind most most diets commercially available are coming in between eight and about 14 percent on crude fat so uh, I, i'm i've not seen a lot of venison that looked like it was 14 percent crude fat to me no. neither have i no. <laughs> you got a strange strange deer if that's the case <laughs> all right uh you want to go on to the next one yeah so let's hit on uh a lot of the uh, i guess a a uh very popular type of topic here is post hunting supplements for these dogs now i don't know if you've ran into this before in your practice but it's it's commercialized quite a bit now what's your opinion on that um so for the most part i, I and, and you guys are much more knowledgeable about this than i am um being a lot more involved in the training scene but the one thing that i try to push and and i push this because once your dogs, once your dogs joints have, once you're dealing with uh, cartilage breakdown, once you're dealing with osteoarthritis, sure, you're going to have some benefit from uh, you're going to have some benefit from joint supplements. But where you can really do the most uh, good for your dog is getting them on them earlier in life. I'm not saying a 14 month old dog needs to be uh, slamming glucosamine twice a day, but at the same time, um, if we're looking at if we're looking at uh, um, cartilage breakdown, we can't do a whole lot about it once it's happened. So you've worked these guys hard. Um, let's go ahead and get some joint supplements on board before they're too old. Um, 
specifically glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM, and you can buy those in a number of formulations. There are some that are more expensive than others, and you don't have to have a prescription to get them. I know you guys had some specific questions for me about um, a couple of different types of post-workout supplements, and which ones were those? Just anything to get mad gains. <laughs> so, so we're looking for gains, baby. So amino acids specifically yeah. Yeah, and, a lot, electro- and electrolytes. A lot of people uh, after a hard training session or hunt, they'll they'll uh, it just comes in a little liquid bottle, and yep. instead of water, you know, within that certain certain window right after the training, they they give that to them, thinking that the amino acids and, and electrolytes or whatever gets in their system, and that they're they're ready to hunt again sooner. I'd say that that's probably, from a scientific perspective, I'd say that that's probably accurate. Amino acids are more readily available to the body quicker than proteins because we're breaking proteins down into what? We're breaking them down into amino acids. So I don't see an issue with it. Um, I don't see an issue with electrolyte supplementation, but keep in mind that that's a pretty delicate balance. Uh, This isn't somebody just giving their dog Gatorade. There's actual amino acid or electrolyte liquid that people put in their water like don't go out and go get some gatorade just because it says electrolytes yeah we're talking about the actual supplement yeah Yeah. um i i don't have an issue with that as long as your dog's performance doesn't seem to be affected by it but keep in mind that uh those electrolytes and specifically potassium are going to drive you know uh, muscle performance so um i'm not going to say i do or don't recommend it let's base it on how your dog responds to those things Certainly, I'd lean more towards the amino acids, though. Okay. Now, an old school method of doing the same thing, you know, way back in the day was a lot of guys would just give their dogs um, hard-boiled eggs or something along those lines. Like OTB, old-timer Bill, he gives his dogs uh, oatmeal cream pies after after a hunt i don't know if that's that'll so get much. those glucose levels up yeah yeah i mean he's not concerned about the mad gains i don't think that he's worried too much about hunting the next day as much of a reward but what what is the uh the pros and cons versus you know giving food right after a hunt and getting that glucose level up as opposed to the liquid version first off you brought up oatmeal cream pie so i would be remiss if i didn't bring up the fact that nick saban eats two of those every day for breakfast Oh, um, man. Part of the process. <laughs> it's called the process. He- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but back to what you said. Um, so those, pro- like we talked about earlier, those are protein sources. And the first thing you need to to, to know for a fact is b- before you're off at the duck camp with your buddies that you're feeding your dog a hard-boiled egg and he's going he's gonna to blow up the duck cabin later. Um, <laughs> but th- those are not necessarily going to be a- as readily available, but sure. I don't, I don't think you're going to do any harm in that. Um, it's, adding some, it's adding some protein to their diet um, for that day. And I would say is, you and I talked about this before um before we went live and that's that those are those those sources are going to be sources that are available eight ten twelve hours down the road not so much you're turning around and running them again in four or five hours what about i mean we didn't really talk about this is it the same thing as if you would take a raw egg and just mix it up in the food would it be a little more bioavailable quicker than doing a hard-boiled egg man i'm not about the same i'm I mean, not 100 percent sure i know the answer to that question i don't think it would make a huge difference so. okay fair enough so one thing that i actually talked to you about 
uh, before this was my old setter that I had. And that the fact was that we gave glucosamine to him in his later years. And I mean, it was a game changer. This dog went from barely getting around to being able to run, do everything. He looked like he was, you know, five, six years younger after we started doing this. Can you hit on that and just kind of how that works and why that is, you know, that way? So, so your joint supplements are the oil that's in the motor. Uh, they're, they're what's keeping you from getting friction in the joint. The older these guys get, the less and less cartilage they have to support, um, to support that, uh, that bone-on-bone action, which is what's painful, which is what's going to cause those uh, inflammation, uh, which is ultimately going to lead to osteoarthritis. So these joint supplements, what they're doing is they're just helping to keep things um, they're, they're keeping the friction down in the joint. So in a lot of dogs, and, and, and two, I, I should also mention that they also have anti-inflammatory properties within themselves. So you're not only going to, you're not going to get the same as you'd get from like an NSAID, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, which would be like you or I taking a Tylenol, but, um, which by the way, let's, let's not do a lot of Tylenol, um, <laughs> Not for dogs. Said that I maybe we'll talk about we'll talk about some first aid a little later and specifically aspirin as an over the counter option. But um, I have had I I can't tell you how many people come to me and um, have been really thrilled with the results that they receive from those from from the joint supplements, specifically like we mentioned earlier, chondroitin, glucosamine, and MSM. Those are the big three that I'd be looking for in any supplement. And most supplements, because they are over the counter, are gonna you're gonna know how to dose those based on what's on the bottle and knowing your dog's weight. All right. Well, that was great. Um, with so at this point, we've talked about really getting the puppy the shots and and before you get into the field. So what I think we need to do because we're running a little long here is let's just break this up into two episodes and. We'll cover uh, the field aspects um, in the next episode, but you know this is great content. We we yeah. definitely appreciate you coming by and doing this for us. Awesome guys, I enjoyed it. Look forward to getting back. All right, thank y'all. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. 
I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.